Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Hosea. If you have your pew Bibles, there in, that book is on page 751. I do have uh, the first chapter there listed for you on the outline. However, we will be covering the content, the contents of three chapters. And so you'll need to have your Bible open and your pew Bibles will provide that for you if you do not have your Bible with you. It takes several weeks to go through this prophecy, 14 chapters long. We will not take that long to go through it, but we will take some significant time studying this important prophet of the Old Testament. Now, to bring us up to speed with the context and who Hosea is, because I know that many of us can be intimidated when we first read a prophetical book. We've heard the abuses on one side that really use or misuse portions of prophetical books and then there's the total ignoring of it on the other side. And so we want to see part of God's word for what it is and what it says to us. So remember where this book falls in God's uh, unfolding of redemption in the Old Testament. Uh, you will recall back to the time of Moses when he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, the time of the Exodus. You remember he gets to the edge of the promised land, but God does not let him go in, but rather Joshua takes up the reins of leadership and he goes into the promised land. Well, what happens after Joshua gets there and conducts a partial conquest? Now, he takes all the land space, but he fails overall in having the people eradicate those who were occupying the land. He allows many to stay, and so those religions, those devotions, stay at least in seed form still in the land of Canaan where Israel now occupies. Those seeds would come back to haunt them. But you have this basically unified country with no king. Well, they went through a series of spiritual falls. God would raise up a judge, free them from a, an oppressing nation. Finally, the people cry out, hey, we want to be like the rest of the nations. They all have kings. We don't have a king. We've got to wait for you to give us some instruction through some judge or some priest or some other person. We want a king like everyone else. So God grants them their desire. And he disciplines them first by giving them Saul, the first king. Eventually, though, in God's grace, he gives David, the Davidic king, and through David gives the promise that there would always be a king for the people of God. Now, they misread this, and they presume upon it to mean that they could pretty much do what they want, and God will always honor, not reading into the full understanding of what God's covenant required for them at that time. At any rate, the kingdom went on under David very well. It grew even more under Solomon. But after Solomon died, the kingdom splits. Ten of the tribes to the north, two of the tribes to the south. The northern kingdom be called, is called Israel, sometimes Ephraim, the strongest of the tribes of the ten. Sometimes it's called Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. But understand that ultimately the northern kingdom rejected God's Davidic king. They rejected the faith in essence. As they departed. But God did not leave them. He still continued to minister. But his focus, his covenantal focus, was on the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin called Judah. So most of the Old Testament prophets are writing to Judah. But there are two in particular who write to the northern kingdom. The kingdom that most apostatized, if you can most apostatize. And he speaks through Amos first. And Amos writes kind of a in-your-face confrontational prophecy to the northern kingdom. Because they had played the spiritual harlot. They had left God and syncretized Yahweh worship with all sorts of other worships. And 
Amos speaks very harshly to the northern kingdom. And he's a citizen of the southern kingdom speaking to the north. Hosea comes towards the end of Amos' ministry. Hosea is the only member of the northern kingdom to be called as prophet and to preach to the northern kingdom. This is where we arrive at Hosea's prophecy. He there is ministering under the end of the years of Jeroboam II. They lived in extreme prosperity. You would think with all the spiritual departure that the northern kingdom would be suffering with regard to their material wealth, but they weren't. In fact, under Jeroboam II, who was called Jeroboam the Great by secular historians, they rose to new levels of prosperity. They were far more prosperous than the southern kingdom. They had alliances with every nation, trade agreements with everyone. They had utter luxury at their disposal. In the midst of this comfort and prosperity and luxury, that's when God sent Hosea. I'm going to read the first chapter of Hosea. Please follow as I read God's holy, inspired, and fallible word. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy in the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah, the children of Israel, shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this difficult prophecy, difficult in that it demanded of the life of Hosea, something none of us can fathom. Yet you have given us a clear message through this great book, and I pray that we would hear it today, that we would be changed as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God will sometimes have people go through particular trials that become really a launching point for their ministry. Think of uh, modern-day folks who have had some traumatic experience as a Christian and then used that as a platform to share Christ with others. Uh, you remember the story of Tori Tenboom, who was a survivor of the Holocaust, and she was able during her life to uh, preach a wonderful message of forgiveness that she first received from God 
through Christ, and then she can share that message of forgiveness, which really resounded with people because if anyone could forgive, certainly the person who was treated like she was during the Holocaust, if she could forgive, others should be able to as well. More recently, uh, you're probably familiar with Gracia Burnham. She was the missionary to the Philippines who lost her husband on a dramatic rescue at the end of their time there while they were in captivity uh, by some terrorists. She has since then been able to use that ministry as a platform to help other missionaries and convince others of their need to go. Rather than be bitter, she's been encouraging and helped others see the need to go, whatever the cost may be. God used specific instances in their life to help them be a platform for God's grace. Hosea. Hosea had a situation in his life that God used to be the platform for his ministry, which we have in the book of Hosea, 14 chapters, most scholars agree that is really high points of all the messages he gave. He continually, over a 60-something year period, preached the message you see in these 14 chapters. A situation in his life that God called him to allowed him to have this platform to refer to the redeeming love of God for his people. It happened because of what Hosea went through. Hosea, the book itself is a vivid picture of God's redeeming love for his people. Now, before we begin this study, I want to give us some guidance for interpreting and applying the message of Hosea. Uh, Reading and interpreting prophetical books in the Old Testament can be somewhat intimidating for sure. I personally prefer narrative books of the Old Testament, uh, the whole of the New Testament, because I feel as though I can understand them and relate with them better. But I have to acknowledge that 16 of the 39 books of the Old Testament are written by prophets, with specific reference even for us today. Now, there is a caution, however. There was a specific audience receiving Hosea's specific prophecy. And we have to, in interpreting it, realize what that was and why it was important. And be careful not to project particulars onto our particular situation today where they don't need to be projected. At the same time, much of this is universal. But to the spiritual forefathers of ours that are spoken of here, the church in the Old Testament, here are a few specifics that Hosea speaks to. First, it's a call to repentance, to come back to the Davidic throne, the temple, and all that God had for them in covenant life. It's also a declaration of God's holiness before the people of God in the whole world. It's a declaration of God's justice before the whole world. Also, it is written to combat their ethnocentric security. The idea that because they were Jews, they would have to be saved by God. It was to combat that, that there was an evident faithfulness that would occur if they really were the people of God. That just an ethnocentric attitude or the idea that I'm a member of the church, therefore I am saved, was combated as God spoke through Hosea. Keeping the original focus and the context in mind, There are particular benefits, though, for each of us believers today. Consider them. First, this book shares something of God's heart towards spiritual adultery. We'll see that soon. Secondly, it reminds us how we can also fall into spiritual adultery. Now, we may not have the bales or the golden calves or the oxen that they were worshiping there, but you and I both know there are many other things that our devotion could be bowed down to. Also, a particular benefit to us today... It shows God's gracious plan to redeem a people for himself. We even have better perspective given the New Testament and its interpretation of these events. 
But also a particular benefit to us is that it gives us a sense of the very difficult price that God paid for our sins. Also, but probably not finally, it reveals that Gentiles added to the church is the key fulfillment of Hosea. We saw it in the last verses of chapter 1, that part of the plan is, by them not being his people, he will in the end bring them back to be his people, something that Jesus says exactly as he gathers the sheep in John 17. Now, with these things in mind, let us study the message that is given. First, Hosea's difficult calling and message. Look at the text with me, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Hosea is a word that is derivative from Joshua, or Jesus' salvation. Of the son of Yeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So during the time of his reign, these various kings, Uzziah, who was the great king who reigned and then died, and Isaiah came on the scene, uh, of the southern kingdom. This is during that time frame, and there's only one significant king in the northern kingdom at this time. There mentioned Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, I want to mention to you that there were six other kings that came after Jeroboam, but they were ineffectual and almost inconsequential. The nation had so given over to other nations that it no longer had sovereignty as a nation. So Jeroboam II is widely recognized as the last real king. The next six kings in the northern kingdom spanned 20 years. Only one of them died a natural death. Everyone else was assassinated. It was total anarchy in the monarchy at that time. So Jeroboam II, at the height of prosperity, we must get this context, the height of prosperity, that's when Hosea is called. And let's recognize that prosperity, brothers and sisters, should never be confused with the hand of God's favor. Just because it looks materially good does not mean God is favoring us. We will see this in this book because he comes to, pros- he comes to prophesy in the midst of really unparalleled prosperity. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom. You want me to do what? Here's Hosea, probably some kind of leader, maybe a rabbi. He had plans and aspirations too, I'm sure. And I don't think this is one of them. Go take your, for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. We see what's going to happen here and some will argue that this is really a parable given. I, I fail to see that gain much strength because when Gomer, his wife, is identified, she's given an actual connection with someone who she's the daughter of and in the language itself speaks in real terms. Now, it could be a parable, and it wouldn't be damaging to the veracity of the story, but it seems to be a real story that Hosea, over a 60-year period, lived out in his own life. So the Lord spoke to him, said, Go take for yourself a wife of Hordom, have children of Hordom. And the parallel we see immediately is between God and his people, God being represented by Hosea, his people by Gomer. Now, most hero stories, I identify myself with the hero. Let's not get down that track. We're Gomer, brothers and sisters. We're not the holy ones. We're Gomer in this story. Then he's to have children. Notice what the text says very closely about these children. First, Jezreel, verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. 
Remember that Israel is referring to the northern kingdom. And this is an episode that goes back to when Jehu was called by God uh, to destroy the prophets of Baal, but also he killed the king, Jotham, before and his family. Told to do this. Sounds barbaric. These people totally left and they had this punishment coming. God commanded them to do this. But Jehu acted in utter vengeance about it, and he massacred more than who he was told to bring judgment to. And this, even though God purged the kingship like he wanted, always was a bloodletting that God sought to bring equality to. A judgment for the human sinful passions of Jehu poured out under the guise of God's commandment. On that day, verse 5, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So God essentially is promising judgment to come to Israel for what had happened in the monarchy. The monarchy had gone so awry, leadership was so poor, that he would bring judgment. And Jezreel was symbolic to them of judgment. So the first child's name was Jezreel. Now notice closely the language of verse 6, because it does not say like it does in the first verse that she conceived and bore him a son. It says she conceived again and bore a daughter. It doesn't say who the father necessarily is. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy in the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So it's over. Uh, this time of, of repentance from the time the kingdom divided, it's over. Uh, you had this time to go back to the southern kingdom, to go back to the temple, to go back to the Davidic kingship. Now it's over. And a reminder in verse 7 that Judah still bears the covenantal hand of God, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them for the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. In other words, I will continue to have my hand upon them, and it's my gracious hand that will save them, nothing they do for themselves. But for you, no more mercy, no more prosperity, no more of the pouring out of blessings you don't deserve. Verse 8, a third child is born. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. The promise was no longer effective for the ten tribes, soon to be known very well as the lost tribes of Israel. The time for repentance was over. They were no longer part of the covenant people. They were effectively Gentiles. Now, that's his marriage, that's his children. It's a direct parallel between the people and God. Hosea and Gomer. Talk about a gut-wrenching mess for the man Hosea. What we find out happens is he takes this wife, Gomer, who is this prostitute, probably a temple or cult prostitute at the time, he marries her. They have children. There's a question about whose children they are. Maybe that's why not my people makes so much sense. She eventually decides one day she's going back to the other life and she's leaving. Uh, what triggers this? What happens? But she never gave it up to begin with and now I'm out of here. And she left. Walked out. Look at the second chapter and you'll start seeing this revealed as it turns to prophecy and prophetic voice. The second chapter says... Say to your brothers, you are my people and your sisters. You have received mercy. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. 
and make her like a, a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her up with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. In other words, she turns back to the old life as a prostitute. Things get worse and worse as she goes off. Who knows how much time elapses. But we come to the third chapter. If you skip ahead and look at the first verse of the third chapter, you have the pickup of this text. The full part of chapter 2, which we'll look at in a moment, gives uh, the analogy of Hosea's life with Gomer and the children. But in chapter 3, we return to the narrative portion. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, that is, Go again, love a woman who was loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. He tells her to go buy her back. Buy her back. What does it mean to eat cakes of raisins? In those days, grapes were a delicacy and it indicated a great amount of prosperity. So if you even could keep enough grapes around to make them raisins, you're rich. It's a signal of the prosperity that the people had. Though they turned to other gods and they loved cakes of raisins, the prosperity they were living. Verse 2 of chapter 3, So I bought her with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecketh of barley. That's about six bushels and a little more. And I said to her, you must well as mine for my days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Please see this vivid, powerful analogy. If you've experienced any amount of adultery in your life, you know that the, the pain that causes. But imagine this man's situation. And then after everyone has had his way, then she has to go back and she's on the auction block, probably naked. That's the way slaves were sold. And before everyone, he buys her back with what he has. And he doesn't have much. He gives her what he has, most likely, to bring her back. And notice how he doesn't try to woo her or doesn't try to say, won't you please come back? He goes and purchases her and takes her. That, my brothers and sisters, is divine grace. We're all on the block, naked. Nothing. Nothing to compel God to come to us. We can't come to Him. He comes and buys us, takes us, and gives a great cost for us, His own Son. The picture is vivid, and Hosea is actually living it, would be all the more vivid for those hearing the story. His marriage is indeed an analogy. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 play out this analogy for us. First of all, let's consider what was wrong. God's people were unfaithful to him. Syncretistic worship is the way to describe it. Uh, the word whoredom is used over and over again. Woman of fornication, literally in some versions. Adultery, harlotry, unfaithfulness, prostitution. Uh, and the prophecy is written as an enraged husband who learns not only of his wife's adultery, but also that the children are not his. Chapter 4 and 5 enumerates the specific instances of their mixing different religions, so you can see them explicitly, and we'll study and we'll see those. But syncretistic worship was the problem. Brothers and sisters, these were not atheists. These were not irreligious people. They were very spiritual. They just combined every, all manner of spirituality. And let me just, as a side note, mention the reason why it is so damning is because God views this as adultery. It's not him that they're worshiping when they're worshiping all this other stuff or saying it's all the same. This is important in our day because we have a lot of blurry lines now. In fact, it's in vogue. 
you're more spiritual or more mature if you just think it's all the same. When one says that the God of Islam is the same of God, as the God of Christianity, I assure you God hates that. Because they're not the same gods. They're different religions. We would whore after another to say they're the same. Mormonism is not the same religion as Christianity. They're not even closely related. It's very dangerous to suppose that there's anything similar. These, these people had commonalities too. They all like to worship stuff. That doesn't make them brothers. They're playing spiritual harlotry by syncretizing all these religions. They were unfaithful to God as a result. But also, we find that God would discipline them in, their t- in time. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 of chapter 2. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax. In other words, she'll be devoted to the one who gives her her temporal needs. Verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her. So the enraged husband is speaking of a way in which he will stop her from doing this any longer so that she cannot find her path. But remember the analogy. This is God now talking about his people. Verse 7, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And she shall say, I will go and return to find my husband, for it was better for me then than now. In other words, he'll make it so difficult for them that they'll have to turn to him. Uh, The prosperity they're experiencing, he brings that to an end and brings them to the wilderness so that they can see what it is they need and are missing. He will do this. Verse 8 says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. Something I've discovered only in recent times of my life, since I've personally become more prosperous, is that money and stuff has a way of covering up our sin. When God takes it away, you're exposed. And unfortunately, really in our land, brothers and sisters, and even to some degree in the church, we're covering a lot of stuff. But God can take it away and expose our nakedness. That's what he does to the northern kingdom. Prosperity, now I'm taking it away. The stuff you thought you earned, I actually was given so you'd cover it. So it wouldn't look so bad, but now I'm taking it away. That's what he says. I will take back my grain in verse 9. In my wine in its season, I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will have personal judgment with you. Verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, for the, and the beasts in the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of, Baal, of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, see the, the disciplining hand of God, but also please see that this is the heart of God towards spiritual adultery. He does not leave us here. 
And this is a huge portion that I, I wanted to cover today because I don't want you just to see the beginning without the end. The first three chapters are very clearly a section intended to be taken as a whole. For that reason, look now at what God does with this passion he has. God who would redeem and restore ultimately through Christ in the addition of the Gentiles to the church. We see here in this passage 700 years before the time of Christ. Back at verse 9 of chapter 1. Notice the vivid language. Call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. This is the judgment. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Wait a minute, what is he saying? He's saying, for me, you're not my people. Now he's saying, you are my people. What is this? Who could these people be? Are they Judah? No, it's not Judah. Judah still has the covenantal hand of God upon them. Who could they be speaking of? It says in chapter 2, similarly, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness in the 14th verse of chapter 2 and speak tenderly to her. In other words, he'll put her out in the wilderness, but then he will take that time of nakedness to tell her the truth and bring her to the truth. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. And at that time, when she came out of the land of Egypt, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will be called my husband, and no longer will you be called, call me Baal. For I remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by names no more. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Please notice, again, with continuity, that this is God doing the work of salvation. He's talking about a people that have been put off, and he will in some fashion bring them back, and it will be his work of grace that does it. Where is this fine fulfillment? Not my people, my people. Have you, do you recognize the language? The Apostle Peter says, to the Gentiles who have now become part of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Word for word fulfillment by the Apostle Peter to the Gentiles who have now come to the church of what happened in Hosea's day. You are the people of God now. Paul. Speaking of this sacred uh, doctrine of election says in Romans 9, But you, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what the, is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Listen to what he says now. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Paul saying this, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Hosea has direct implications for us. We're the fulfillment 
the bringing back of these who he put off and engraft back in to his body, his church. We have a wonderful picture in Hosea of God's redeeming love, particularly for his chosen among the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, as you read this, please get a clear picture of how desperate our situation is apart from Christ. I mean, when I think of Gomer and all the shame that could have been there, just try to imagine yourself in that position. But not as Hosea going to buy. That's bad enough. Imagine all the murmuring of the people around that Hosea would do this. Just let her go, some are saying. Why'd you marry her to begin with? And all the things that could be said. Well, that's certainly what, if there were someone that could report to God, they would say the same thing. Let them go. Let those people who continually reject you go, that defame you, who whore after other stuff. But God didn't do that to us or for us. In all our nakedness and all our shame, on the auction block, he gave his own son to buy us back. To buy us back. We are the people of God. Now it is for us to respond to our great father for what he has done in buying us back and to live for him by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this message of Hosea. It is vivid. Lord, I am so tempted to want to identify with every hero of every story I read when I recognize that the person who I am in this text is identified with the prostitute, with the one who hoard after other stuff and not you. Father, forgive us. But Lord, we also stand as the redeemed, thanking you for buying us. Lord, give us Give us the ability to live in response to your great grace. Give us the ability to rest in our security that you have made us a people, that you have done these things, Lord, that we might be just so encouraged and empowered by your sovereign action in our life that we would see nothing else but to go and tell the world by both what we do and what we say. And I pray that this would be a reality for us, even as we read a book that's 2,750 years old. Thank you, Lord, for its relevance today through Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to a great 